Before we start, we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. We are talking to Erica Katz about her debut novel, The Boys Club. Erica Katz is the pseudonym for a graduate of Columbia Law School who began her career at a major Manhattan law firm. A native of New Jersey, she now lives in New York City where she's employed at another large law firm. So full disclosure, I don't know if Leslie mentioned this, but you are talking to two lawyers who both no. practiced, yes, practiced oh. in big law. I was oh a transactional God. lawyer at Greenberg Traurig and as well as at in-house at UBS. Kate has been at Winston Strawn and Arnold and Porter K. Scholler and is still a practicing litigator. Oh my so, gosh, did I inspire like all kinds of PTSD you, or like SD? <laughs> <laughs> some you of have it no we've, idea. yeah some of it we've processed some of it we have a lot to talk about today <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad no but we loved devouring this novel it's been called sweet bitter meets the firm which I think is accurate I also felt a little bit of devil wears Prada Kate said a little bit of luckiest girl alive all books that we love so we hope that you take those as compliments oh but goodness. Yes, thank you. We also know you're early on in the publicity realm, but do you have your elevator pitch and you want to tell us about Boys Club? Sure. I was inspired to write Boys Club sort of as a therapy for myself at a time I felt was very uncertain in America. I, I had a lot of trouble relating to what was happening around me and differing opinions. And I think that I've always sort of sorted my thoughts out best in writing and so I wrote The Boys Club in an effort to explore very honestly, I hope you'd agree, with very little judgment, the way things are in corporate America in an effort to sort of engender conversation about how they could be different and how corporate America misses the mark in promoting diversity and gender equality. And I hope that for lawyers, it rings very true, but I also hope it's equally applicable to other areas of, you know, life and 
and other areas of work for people. I don't, I don't think it's sort of relegated to the realm of law, but no. um, it's no, I haven't been in corporate America. I, it's just, it applies just as well there. Great. I'm so glad I actually haven't been so, but, yeah. but that's my hope. And yeah, I think, I think it's been a really successful, long therapy session for me. And I find that post writing, I'm so much less judgmental about the people around me in the workplace and sort of what they do or don't do that I disagree with. I, I hope these characters ring true to everyone and to make a character ring true, you sort of have to put yourself in their shoes. And I found that I disagreed with a lot of the decisions the characters made, but I loved all of them, really all of them, even the, I mean, lots of people talk about my protagonist being unlikable, which is so sad because I really like. Yeah, I'm making a crying face because I loved her. Yeah, I get the question, like what it's like to write. It's a very, it's it's like a complimentary question, I think. So don't take any offense to it. But what is it like to write a protagonist that's unlikable, but who people still want to figure out what happens to it. I'm just like, no, really? (laughs) Because yeah, she does some things that people disagree with, but that was really, really important to me because I started to write probably most prolifically during the Kavanaugh hearings and when Trump was elected. And there was a lot of chatter in the ether about women's sexual history and past mistakes when speaking about current assault and things like that. And I think that that is so wrong. I think that when something happens that is criminal, like an assault, it that is in and of itself a sui generis occurrence. Like, I think that's a legal term. So if any, like, the thing is, in and of itself, yeah. the two of you are just sitting there yes, not Of course. <laughs> so it was really important to me that people be able to discuss her faults and her mistakes in a completely separate thought than they discuss what happened to her in the book without any spoilers. Like, you know, a ton of stuff happens to her. Yes. But where she was wrong and where she was right has, and and I think everyone in the book is a victim and an aggressor at a certain point, which was also Mm -hmm. really important to me. Yeah. And it's, you know, life is complicated and very messy. And I think especially when talking about high stakes situations, people try to compartmentalize people into these very specific categories. And the book was sort of my hoping that fiction provides a really beautiful way for people to see that that's not how you can talk about people. Well, you are leading into our next question so beautifully. And it's a long question. I should warn you, there's a bit of a wind up. But um, I take so, yeah, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> So on our podcast, we talk about complicated women, which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with layers and dimension, as you've just been discussing. And our tagline is, we're complicated. So we love to discuss women in fiction that have flaws or imperfections, who don't always make good choices, but who we can relate to nonetheless. I mean, that's our that's our thing. So I you're, did not know that, but I'm so glad that you I- You are in the right place, yes. So Alex Vogel certainly qualifies for that. You're your protagonist in The Boys Club. She's a high achiever who lived her life by the book, star student, athlete in high school, Harvard Law grad. Now she's a first-year associate at a prestigious Manhattan law firm being wooed by the top practice group, Mergers and Acquisitions. This is the group that drives the business, gets paid the most. They have perks coming out of their asses. Alex promises her family that, and her boyfriend and herself that she won't change, but we see her sucked into this world in a way that plays on her strengths, but also accentuates 
her weaknesses. So I'm a litigator. So my vices were different than Alex's. For me, it was the fear that if, what if I only have one speed now, you know, to be aggressive, to be argumentative. It's, it's hard, I think, to have a softer side when your life day in and day out is confrontational. But there's also a rush, kind of a sense of power I get from the adversarial process. And my vices were very similar to Alex's, <laughs> but my mindset was different. Unlike Alex, I wanted to be changed by big law. I wanted it to give me the power and access and legitimacy and structure, all things that I didn't have growing up. So I really leaned into that change. But then similar to Alex, when I'm like, okay, this is the direction it's going in, maybe this isn't the best. And maybe more like a, another character or even two, I, no spoilers, I kind of wanted to get out instead of trying to do something better there or change direction there. So we wanted to ask you about your conflicted, complicated feelings of being in this environment or how you gave them so perfectly to Alex. But first, because I told you it was a long windup, I just want to read a scene um, from the book between Alex and her mentor that literally stopped both of us in our tracks. Can I just say how yes. I am by that? <laughs> I just... I'm honestly, you're right. I'm very early in this publicity process. Um, I'm truly touched that I feel like you guys understand what I was doing. Here. Oh, yeah. You, we, yes. we feel you. Okay, uh, yes. sorry. Go ahead. Yes. So, so you wrote her condescending tone knocked me off balance yet again, and two simultaneous but disparate emotions cropped up in my chest: terror that if I continued in big law, I'd inevitably become cold and rigid like Vivian. And exhilaration that if I continued in big law, I'd become a fashionable, beautiful, intelligent, and successful partner like Vivian. So can you tell us more about what you wanted to explore or why you wanted to explore this conflict in Alex and maybe the ways big law has changed you? Sure. I think that the tension that Alex feels in that particular scene that you just read, which is sort of a microcosm of how she's feeling throughout the entire mm -hmm. book. Yes. I totally agree. That's sort of where I lay it out for the reader, just exactly how she's feeling in case maybe people weren't getting it in other scenarios. It's something that I felt the day I walked into a law firm and I never stopped feeling. I don't come from a family that exists in corporate America. Like Alex Bola, I come from an entirely medical family. I am the only non-medical professional oh, wow. in my family. And I think that the power and the money is so sexy. I do. I, I love food. I love <sighs> restaurants. I love everything that Big Law throws at you. I love clothes. I love shoes. And I hate it so much of the way I think it changed people. I think that it exposed me, and not just Big Law, just you know, and you meet clients and you meet other, you know, big sort of industry people. Yeah, um, sure. And I think, I think, I don't know that power corrupts people. I actually think my view is, is far more cynical. I think that power and money makes people unapologetic about being exactly who they are. And I think a lot of people have a lot of bad tendencies and it's a super cynical view, but I found that I found like the more power people have, the less they felt they needed to accommodate others and apologize. And then there were people who were just phenomenal. Like, you know, it just, they continue to be these super kind, exactly who they are people. Yeah. So it's not a blanket statement, but it terrified me. It rocked me to my core. Like, who would I be if I never had to answer to anyone? 
and I liked everything that came with it. But I was so enamored with the lifestyle, I think, to begin with. And I think that shows in Alex Vogel. But then sort of unlike Alex, I realized very quickly that that wasn't what mattered the most to me. And I really wanted to write a book and I really wanted to be a writer. And I really wanted to pay off student loans and use big law to do that. And, you know, it turned me into an amazing thinker. Like it teaches you how to think critically about the world as does law school, but to cut your teeth, you know, for a life experience. Yeah. yeah, Like to cut your teeth in a big law firm is like, you have sharp teeth, you know, Um, (laughs) sort of handle anything that comes your way. But for me, the question was, do I want to just live a life where I'm constantly handling things that come my way? And I think that I learned a tremendous amount. And I think you can be a a wonderful human being in a big law firm, as I saw so many people. But I also think that I think that it can corrupt people by like, (laughs) by putting them in a place with too many other people just like them, as cynical as that Mm. is. So I'm not practicing now. I'm at this great law firm. But I stopped practicing when I published the first novel, and I'm working on my second. And this is my new path. And I think that was... I have nothing bad to say about it. I had such a wonderful time. And by the way, I hope that shows in the book. Like, yeah. it's good fun. Oh, yeah. And these people can be incredible and also incredibly awful, but they can be incredible. And I mean, by the way, what you can do with vast amounts of money is pretty amazing. And yeah. it's one of the professions yeah. that has it. And you can make a difference in any direction you choose with those with those resources. So yeah, I love it. I, I I thought it was the best experience. Obviously, I'm eternally grateful uh, to having yeah. practiced in big law because it sort of gave me the inspiration for this first book. And I've always felt very supportive by my colleagues, supported by my colleagues. And some of my best friends are in big law and that's it. But I felt that dichotomy between like what you could be and what you are and what it would do to change you from day one. Yeah. yeah. You've really created the world here. And the world, as any good world is, is full of good and bad and the positives and the negatives. And you really did that through all of the characters. Even Alex. I don't know if she's unlikable, whatever that means. But she is... I mean, she's complicated. I think people are very uncomfortable with complicated. And so I love your your tagline. (laughs) Yes. Hence, yes. And we talk about the unlikable female protagonist a lot, but really it's just us trying to celebrate and talk about these different depictions of women, which we we love to see this. And I don't even put her, like you said, on the spectrum of the un- the complicated or unlikable female protagonist we've talked about, but we could be biased, clearly. Yes, we are. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like she has these super funny moments and like these super yes. funny moments. And then she does some bad, like, you know, she's just a person. Yes. Yes, exactly. And she's in a period of time when I know for me, being in that period of time was very intense, like accelerated, who am I going to be and what am I going to do with this? And, you know, there's a reason why summer associates who are nobodies get to go to Nobu, you know, yeah. and are taken to taken to see Hamilton. I like, saw Hamilton. Yeah. So there's a reason why that is your first taste of what it's like to be in a law firm. And of course, you're given real cases too and you're giving real work as well but they know they know what's up there (laughs) how to get you pulled in so you alluded to this and we've been talking about a little bit well one of the characters tells Alex that M&A is a highly competitive practice that that Alex is vying for is such a boys club 
there's no doubt that big law is still an environment ruled by men where masculine energy, and that can come from men or women, is encouraged and rewarded. As Kate and I have discussed this endlessly in real life and on this podcast, we, we really try to pick apart what, what all of that means. And even though, like many of us, Alex does admit uh, that she has always gotten along better with men than women, there are still serious questions uh, about whether or not the system is rigged so that women can't win. Alex wants to resist that notion at first, but eventually the darker realities of the firm shed a harsh light on the expectations placed on women on how to behave and how to succeed in the workplace. There are many references throughout the book to gender inequalities and gender roles within big law, but I wanted to talk about in your acknowledgments, you hope for all little girls that the working world be more level for your generation than for mine. Tell us about the title, The Boys Club, and why you wanted to explore this issue facing women in big law, or as you said earlier, really corporate America generally. The latter part of your question is really is really the key. It had less to do, there are certainly huge inequalities in big law, and it is very male-dominated, but... It was really inspired by the environment, especially the political environment happening around me. Mm. And I think, you know, everyone says, write what you know, and I know big law. And so that was the vehicle I used to explore these, what I think are far more expansive inequalities. And, and yes, and I just, I think that I, I don't have children, but I just, I think everyone has to hope that they like leave the world better than how they found it. And I just really hope that one day it's not part of the dialogue, which is how do we promote this woman, even though she just went on maternity leave? You know, how do we, how do we, you know, promote this black female because we need her in our stats? Like, I hope it's just first of all, a meritocracy, but also just such a meritocracy that, and, and this is a long road because we can talk about like law school admissions and college yeah, admissions, right. you yes, know, high school right. admissions, like forget it. Like you could, you could just go down this rabbit hole forever. But so I don't like, I don't realistically think this is happening soon, but I do hope that the conversation needn't be so prescient, which it is now. And I'm glad mm-hmm. I wrote this book because how to promote diversity and equality in corporate America is a necessary and very pressing conversation that people need to have. And I think that I, I touch on it, but I think we're missing the mark by focusing on ratios, right? Like this many black partners, this many female partners, this many Hispanic partners, and they're just the top line of this rate, you know, the numerator of this ratio Mm-hmm. And we need to start so much younger. Like we need to start when people are summer associates and make sure that they're having equal opportunities to work and all of that, because to just, you know, spew out these fractions, like there are some sort of success story is just not right. Especially when people are being actually treated the way the characters in the book were treated. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and I also hope I do this all like, I have no judgment about this. Like this is how things are now. Yeah. I lay out in the end, which I actually like just wanted to do for my own personal therapy, mm-hmm. sort of how I think things can get better just a little. But actually, this podcast was the point of my book, right? To, to spur a conversation about how things could be different rather than preach 
in a book. Like, I hope I just provide no. a really delicious story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So people will listen to podcasts like this and maybe sit around their dinner tables after they do and talk to their daughters and sons about what's happening at their workplace and how mm-hmm. they feel that minorities are treated in their offices and you know, my whole family's doctors and I have, you know, my sister's a medical professional and my sister-in-law's a surgeon and we speak endlessly about how hard it was, you know, and my Mm sister-in-law talked about how nervous she was to say she was pregnant for the first time, but everyone knew because she's a sinus surgeon and they're like 18 hour surgery. So she had to pee like six times. (laughs) (laughs) So every walk of life. And I do hope Mm -hmm. that one day the ratios have balanced out and reflect the population in general and the talent in the population in general. And we don't, I I don't need to write a book like this and people read this book and think that it's anachronistic and, and completely ludicrous Unfortunately, when I wrote the book, I received feedback that there were really unbelievable parts of the book in the opposite direction. Like they were way too wild. <laughs> yeah. And this was not not to give anything away, but this was yeah. pre Jeffrey Epstein pre like I wrote this book yeah. over 18 months ago. You know, I sold it almost 18 months ago. And the world is unfortunately, that is not the feedback that I'm getting anymore. Right. So I think this was the other way. And this book is just, again, way too wild. But for now, it's all too real. And yeah. Yeah. And that's why I wrote it to try to make things more level. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's part of what happens. Alex goes in not really thinking much about gender and the differences there. And she starts to realize, okay, maybe there's more because. I know I was definitely sold that I can do whatever I want and there are no obstacles and it's not that simple. It's really not. Making the the playing field more level is going to take generations of believing that, I think, to have it really be true. And I think it's particularly tricky. I'm one, I wonder if you two agree um, in a client service business. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a really complicated issue I explore is the business need to keep clients happy and therefore how clients react to females in the workplace and whether that should be controlled by your employer, whose responsibility is Mm -hmm. that. I found that very confusing in real life, particularly, I mean, I I actually just to lay it out there, never experienced what Alex Vogel did, but particularly problematic in my life, who you were working for, right? Mm -hmm. Because you worked for the firm, but you had clients. And if their clients were happy, your firm was happy, but your clients did not have the same sort of responsibility towards you that your firm did, nor did your firm always abide by it. But that's really complicated in client service businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And who the client is matters too, right? When I went in-house at UBS, that had a lot of women and is a Swiss company and you just feel like it's a different energy. Those same law firms where I worked and where I knew other people, they didn't take us to places that that you take the Bear Stearns or the whoever, you know. Mm. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, they treated their clients differently. You have to wonder what part of it, and this is outside of the scope of it and really not something I'm particularly sympathetic to at this point but how much of it is performative on their part on the men's parts too like how much of this is just like oh we're supposed to go to a strip club I don't know like this is what this client wants yeah that doesn't apply to a lot of the people in this book but there's got to be a little of that 
going on. Yeah. And I, and I think, oh gosh, I actually think it got, so one of the criticisms when I first wrote the book was that it was too long, but there was this great sort of showing about a a guy who did not abide by the boys club rules succeeded. And it was like a separate story and I loved it. And it was just like a parallel sort of, he didn't play by these games, but he succeeded nonetheless. And I I actually think that exists as well. I sometimes wonder if those guys who are just like, I'm going to go home to my wife, weirdly are slightly more respected at the end of the day. But it's really hard, especially when you're young, to make those decisions. And if you don't make those decisions young, I think it's really hard to start being that person. So I, I right. agree. Yeah. And I think yeah, it's yeah. Again, complicated. I don't think there's an easy fix when your client wants to do something and your job is to keep your client happy. Right. Um, right. right. So, yeah. I, I think also the client services aspect plays a big part in, in diversity initiatives generally too, because you know, firms want to do it because of course it's the right thing to do. But what they always talk about is it's a good business decision. I think that even comes up in the book, Uh, right? But the clients who drive that business, some we've heard care more than others, right? So, and it comes mostly from the transactional practices. You say, listen, my private equity client or my real estate client doesn't give a whatever if a woman's on the deal. Whereas in litigation, we have a ton of, of big you know, Fortune 500 companies, that's that's 100% what they care about. Like they want to see on the case that there is a lot of diversity. But for those partners who work in, for clients who don't care, they should do it because it's right. But if their clients aren't pushing them, then they don't want to do it. Yeah. So totally you have pockets you. within, you know? Yeah. And like, so. just, I promise this is the last cynical card I'm playing. But like, <laughs> what if puns didn't care? Like, right. Thank God that in the past, like five mm-hmm. to 10 years, especially clients have been vocal about the teams yes. being presented to them, being reflective of the population in general. And it's still hard. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's just, you know, last minute bringing someone else who looks like your client to a pitch. And that's also not right, but yeah. sometimes it gets the job done, but you know, small blessings, you know, it's really great that clients have been vocal about it because God knows where we'd be if, if they didn't. Right. Right. Baby right. steps sometimes yeah. is yeah. kind of all you can, it's how you right. get there. You should be doing it regardless. Law yes. firms should be doing it regardless. All, yes. all businesses should be doing it regardless. Yes. Correct. So on this line of that we're talking about, you wrote a, a great foil for Alex in certain ways is Derek. Right. And we won't give too much away, but no matter how bad she thinks she has it or when she's in a kind of a bad place or when she actually does have it badly, Derek's comparison as a black man is always worse and always, maybe, maybe not worse is the right situation, but just more layered and more fraught than Alex's. How did you, now obviously you wrote this, you said you sold it 18 months ago, this has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter and the the more recent uprising it's just something that was obviously on your radar why did you want to include that everyone is fictional but derek is sort of the amalgamation of my friends who are black and i actually like so embarrassingly never truly had the conversation 
about what they felt about these things. I'm like, I'm mortified by it. And I have since, but when I wrote it, much like Alex, like I sat there during these like diversity meetings where, where, and I was just, I wondered how they felt, you know? And I wondered if, cause I felt a tinge of this stuff as a woman. Right. And I knew that people were proud of statistics about women, but there's something you can see. Someone's a woman, right? It's like, it's not like LGBTQ in the workplace, but it's something you can see, especially in a meeting. And I think I toy with it with Alex because someone at one point thinks given her email address, she's a man because of the name Alex Bowles. But in fact, Alex, Sam, like they have gender neutral names on purpose because I was really playing with that. And then Derek, his issues are so deep. And he's what he's, I think my favorite character. I think he's so complex. Mm -hmm. And I think I could write a whole novel about Derek, but I think I give enough of his backstory that he becomes knowable. And yeah, those issues are... I think that the world, like just to lay it out there, I think the corporate world right now is better for women than it is for African-Americans and people of color. And so I needed to put that in the book. I also think Alex and Derek at points take advantage of the firm's need to promote diversity. Alex in particular becomes quite manipulative about it. But in general, I, I wanted to explore why situations are created that people feel the need to take advantage of their disadvantage Um, and how we can combat that, right? And how we can just make people feel equal. And there's no easy answer, but I think think the conversation that people are being put in situations where they take advantage of sort of minority status and why that needs to be is a conversation worth having. And Derek is in there. And I love Derek. Just uh, just level set. (laughs) Uh, Agreed. And it it really gave the novel such a fresh angle. It felt so much more relevant than, you know, than the other legal kind of uh, world books that we're used to reading. I really loved them. By the way, since I wrote the book, I sort of met someone Someone came into the firm who's like Derek esque, and I just keep wondering if he's going to be like this. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of amazing because because I think I wrote like pretty real characters in yes. retrospect. Um, I think when you're in it and you're writing, you always wonder: is this is this over the top? Is this too subtle? Will people get this? And I think at the end of the day, asking those questions you know, necessitates a more honest character. And I think, I think Derek just exists everywhere. And it's such a shame. Loved him. Loved him. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, we seem to have a thing for interviewing uh, former lawyers turned writers. So we've had a few different angles here with the lawyers turned authors that we've interviewed for the podcast. So there's been the people who thought the law was sort of the safer, path, you know, the quote unquote real job, like Kimberly McCrae told us that, or even Corinne, that's why she went into the law. Then there's those who pushed themselves to write. So they didn't need their backup plan of going to law school, which is what Emily Temple told us. Another Mary Adkins told us she loved the law in theory, but did not like the practice of law and knew the first minute she walked into big law. And Se- then second day, was, second day. Yeah. Second oh, day. Really? Second day. And then my friend and former colleague, Emily Giffen, 
who we interviewed recently, and she says, you know, she has no regrets about her legal education or career, which most people do did agree with. But she also, you know, had no regret completely leaving it behind. So it seems that, you know, you and I are sort of a similar track, the dual tracking hit types who are doing both things at once. So what was the moment while practicing law where you said, I have to write this book? And how did you run with it and sort of navigate the road to publishing while still practicing? Oh, it's a complicated question. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. So weird that I don't remember sitting down thinking I'm going to write a novel. It was not really it's so bizarre. It was not my actual intention. Again, like, I think I, I was always that, like, you know, angsty adolescent who, when anything happened, I'd write it down. Like, I'd write a letter that I never sent. Mm-hmm. Right. I always made sense of my thoughts in words. I always loved English. I always loved reading. I always loved writing. I think that if I thought I could live financially comfortably by being an author, I would have gone for it the day I graduated college. So I would say that it's truly my passion, writing. What did you major in in college? I double majored in English and psychology. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, just like find it all super fascinating. And I feel like religion is just like a blend of English and psychology, to be honest. Like, yes. That's how and history. It's, yeah, it's like exactly. how, yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, so yeah, law was the practical path for me. And my parents, who like you would think, you know, survived the Great Depression based on how many times they told me you have to have a profession for when everything falls apart. Like, I went to law mm-hmm. school. Like, I wasn't, if I was going to be the only non-doctor in the family, like... That was the yeah. only other option. I couldn't really go right into art, like, and be a writer, right. because, like, that would just provide, like, laughable dinner table conversation. Um, no, in all seriousness, they probably would have supported me, but I felt this real drive to become a professional, and I don't, like, begrudge anyone for it, and I don't regret it, not even a little. Again, I loved big law, love big law. And it definitely like was around election time of the 2016 Donald Trump election. Mm-hmm. And work was really busy. You know, you see things every day in a big office that just like, you know, it just sort of became highlighted by the fact mm-hmm. that there was like Me Too happening. And this person who's half the country thought should lead our country was, you know, saying, and I just was having trouble, like, figuring out what people who weren't me were thinking. And I've always, like, really fancied myself very empathetic and, you know, socially aware. And I just was having trouble. Like, I, I had a lot of anxiety and, you know, I've, I've, I've actually never been, like, a huge proponent of therapy for me. Like, I think it's wonderful, but I... I grew up an athlete and I like am physical and I jog it out and I process my thoughts on the West side highway every morning. Really? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And jog it out. you know, and then I like get dressed for work and that lets me like forget about all those things, which I also, you know, I love having a profession because of that. Like when things fall apart, I have to like get dressed and sit in a meeting and the world mm. turns and it reminds you of that and nothing was working. And so I started to write and the, so it seemed so odd at the time, but for the first time in my life, it came out in fiction. It came out as other people's perspectives, 
But in retrospect, it makes a ton of sense because I was having trouble understanding other people, right? For the first time, it wasn't my thoughts that I was trying to make sense of. It was other people's thoughts. And in this really like sort of beautiful way, I had to put myself in their shoes to see the decisions they were making that I disagreed with. And I can't recall when, but I thought this could be something, right? And it was after Trump was elected and it was, the story sort of started to take shape. And interestingly enough, the first, I don't even know if you could call it a first draft, but the first thing I tried to write focused on an inter-office affair. And I wrote it and I just read very flat after I finished it and it was super boring and I took it in a different direction and I just sort of scrapped it. And, and I think that the, the non-sexual relationships in the non-romantic non-sexual relationships in the book are fascinating, more fascinating Mm -hmm. than, than any sort of like romantic thing happening. Although those are also fascinating. I really like broadened the breadth of the book and then I submitted it to, um, an agent. And I mean, not to make this, not to make this sound easy for anyone listening. I submitted it to a lot of agents. Um, I was just, just going to say, please don't tell me it was only one. Sorry. No, but I actually had this, it was like total kismet. I had this like unbelievably lucky time. I submitted it to a lot of agents and to one in particular, I read Stephanie Dandler's Sweet Bitter. And I thought Mm -hmm. that it sounded a lot like not not like the the storyline's not the same, but her voice and her place in life felt similar. Yeah. So I submitted the book to her agent, who wrote back, shockingly, I actually like this, but I'm going on maternity leave and Sweet Bitter's a star series. And can I give it to my colleague? She used to be, do you guys know this story, by the way? No. No, no. but we know. She, so she used to be, She she's a lawyer. And I was like, couldn't believe anybody wrote yeah. that. And I was like, sure. Like, I think I only wrote sure, like in an attempt to just answer as fast as possible. Like, sure, exclamation point. And then it turns out that my agent summered at my first law firm. And we were the same summer. And you two would know this. It gives you like a book of your fellow summers. Yes. And we found our pictures. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So super kismity, like the most. Oh, that that's why people are like, story. how did this happen? And I'm like, I had no control over this. This was like so lucky. Like, I, I think that. That's, that's insane. And I've. I'm going to make you tell me you can, we can tell it offline. I got to know what firm it is. Okay. We don't have no, to. Offline, offline. <laughs> only because, I, I only because by the way, I don't want this. I really want people to talk about this book for the book. And I don't want people yeah. like trying to figure out oh, yeah. if it's real. Cause it's not. And I think it loses its integrity as soon yeah. as people like see that there's parallels in my life. And then they're going to try to figure out where they are. And I think that's not the point. Yeah. And by the way, if you're listening to this entire podcast, we've already named firms we've worked at that could all have had this exact same I know. I love it. So don't bother trying to figure it out. It is literally everywhere. Right. And right. And hopefully not just law firms, but the three of us know law firms. Right. So I hope someone listening to this is like, this could be Warner Brothers or CAA or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, Agreed. Agreed. So yeah, so so that was it. The inspiration came from the world around me and, and and it just took on a life of its own. And it was my first foray into fiction. And, and you know, I, I think every author is like, I was just lucky, but like, I was, I was so lucky. <laughs> like, and 
I just, I, I count these blessings like every single day when I wake up, like I love this new life and I'm so excited for the world to read this book. But the fact that it's something that the world can read is like incredible to me on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh, that's so unbelievable. Yes. Oh, I love, I love that. And really we're well. going to come back to that a little bit because it's another one of the themes we talk about on this podcast is kind of kismet and fate and free will and all that but but since you're talking about it now being a writer I want to talk about your writing process where when how are you a morning person Um, before this was anything I could sort of do it before work or after work but as soon as it became something real that I wanted to focus on I found it and I tried but I found it impossible to do in the same day that I was doing my legal job first of all legal jobs, I think, just consume your life. You know, the the emails start before you wake up in the morning and you're catching up from the second you wake up and they don't stop. There is no end of work day. And so I found it impossible to write on the days I was working, even though I tried everything from waking up early to sort of, you know, trying to sign off at a certain time. What I ended up doing was taking vacations and getting a little territorial about my vacations because, as you guys know, they don't actually exist in big law. Like, right. oh yeah, you're on smartphones. Yeah, but I became like territorial about them, and I would take like these chunks of time throughout the year. And my family mm-hmm. knew what I was doing, and my my boyfriend at the time knew I, what I was doing, and everyone was really supportive. And I would lock myself in my apartment and write from. I mean, I'm talking like sometimes 12 hours a day if it was coming at me and other times like it didn't. And it was really unfortunate because I was wasting a vacation day. Right. Right. And sometimes the words just don't come. But that is how I wrote in chunks of time. And for the record, I think that I get writer's block less than other people because I was given a great piece of advice when I said I wanted to try to write a book by this this editor at Random House named Peter Gathers. And he said, don't write right away. Let the let the chapter marinate, let the characters marinate. And I think because I was saving up these thoughts until I had this designated vacation time to write, I think it was like, you know, out of the gate. And so writer's block was actually not a huge problem for me. Like, watch, I'm going to write my second book and be like, (laughs) (laughs) but, but yes, that is how I wrote chunks of vacation time. And I kept a notepad that my sister got me for my birthday with a pencil on me at all times to write down thoughts, even in the middle of the mm-hmm. night, you know, and sometimes, you know, I'd wake up and be like, this me like make everyone a kitchen sink, like something that, that made like zero <laughs> sense that I was clearly dreaming. And, you know, and, but other times it was like, oh, that's a great idea. Like, and I would even, it turned into even playing with words, like play with this word and this, you know, and it got mm. real specific, but I always had a pen and paper and then I had these chunks of time that I wrote. And then editing got easier, right? Because that, I felt like the not, it was less creative. And I could do that, you know, if I ever had a couple hours during the day. And like, as you guys know, work, it, it's different for people who aren't sort of lawyers, but work can be so slow sometimes, you know, if you're in between yeah. deals, if you're in between trials. Right, sure, yeah. Right, yeah. So, so I found it easier, way easier to edit with a full-time job because sometimes you had downtime. Right. And right. 
part of being a corporate lawyer is like you can sometimes wait around until 5 p.m. for your clients at a bank to respond. Right. You know, you know. Um, right. So, yeah. And yeah, rather than sort of twiddling my thumbs or getting lunch, I, I yeah, I worked, I worked hard. I was pretty tired for two years, but it was, <sighs> yeah. it was so great. And what about book two? Are you a little more regimented about it or are you still trying to? I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of respect for the process. You know, you can't force it. You have to kind of go with it. You run with whatever's kind of speaking to you at the time. But do you find any difference? In so, oh, and, and I meant to say this. I didn't outline my first book. I literally sat down and started writing chapter one and finished writing chapter whatever it is, like 20 and I remember handing it into my agent and she said, you know, after, by the way, after working on it a while and she was so wonderful. She was like my first editor. She had a lot of suggestions about how to make it more commercial. And she was like, well, and just send me your outline because it's helpful to send. And I was like, I don't, uh, I never <laughs> had an outline. And she's like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, oh, you just God. wrote like, that's that's stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she's so right. So I don't think that this second book is easier to write, but it's easier to write because I know that it's very helpful to outline. Also, when when you sell your first book, or when I sold my first book, I actually don't know if this is true for everyone. I had to write the whole thing. I think that's pretty true for first-time authors. And then mm-hmm. second-time authors, you can write the first like half or bit and then outline for the rest. Yeah. And so in an effort not to drive myself completely insane the second time around, I'm outlining, I outlined and we just submitted it. And I like fingers oh. and crossing my fingers for viewers who can't see me. Um, yes. who can't see me. Um, wow. I hope that it gets bought. It's set in the art world. Ooh. And I think it is a similarly high octane, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, but with a really important message. And it explores people's, fakeness for lack of a better word in both social media and and there's an element of art forgery in it and so it explores fake in life on multiple levels which, oh, wow i love yeah, the like sound really of yummy, that. i think and i love writing it and it's totally inspired by the fact that i am not even remotely a tiny bit a little bit social media inclined but especially for this book it's been encouraged of me and I constantly on a daily basis battle with posting something like happy or funny after something bad happening. And I just, because it's not second nature to me, I think I've just been really struggling with sort of the image people portray publicly on these things. And so it just, it, it's an exploration of sort of fakeness. Oh, that wow. sounds fantastic. <laughs> I am knocking on wood, crossing my fingers, so crossing my toes. I, oh. Yeah, me too. Oh, but yeah, I, I outlined the second thing. I would advocate outlining. I don't know if I'll stick to the outline, right? But right. I also... You know, you're not you're not the only one, though. Kimberly McCrae told us she does an outline. I love it. does an outline. I have yeah, the, so... the honor of meeting her at a HarperCollins dinner, and she's just so sharp and yes. so good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very okay, cool. Okay, good. Yeah, she's so lovely. Yeah, I just... Right, but there is... In the same way I told you guys that I sort of scrapped the first book that I wrote, right, which was about a relationship, I don't think you ever waste the time that you spend exploring your characters because Mm -hmm. you just know them better on some other level. Like, the characters who had that inter-office affair that I wrote were the same, but I think maybe 10% of that made it into the boys' club. Right. But I knew all their backgrounds. 
Yeah. And that must have informed how I wrote. So, you know, it's just an extra, as far as I'm concerned, it's an extra layer of that advice I got from the editor at Random House, which was let things marinate and toy yeah. with them, right. play with yeah. them. So right. even if I don't stick to it, I think it's been a really useful exercise. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so before we, we always have to talk astrology too on our podcast, really? particularly in our... It's sort of become a, a side theme here. You guys have to teach me. With, I know nothing. Okay. Well, so this might answer our question, but we we usually find on it, or we thought from life that many lawyers reject the idea that our personalities and lives could be written in the stars. But so many writers that we've spoken to really embrace these concepts of sort of magic and mysticism and fate versus free will. And that kind of goes along with astrology. So we were going to ask where you fall on the divide. Sounds like I know. Yeah, but, but, she, also, so, but she talked a lot about the mysticism or the kind of the kismet. kismet oh, yeah. I, yes, yes. Yes. I, I think I fall on the line, which is probably very similar to, I, I hope, how I've answered all your questions, which is like, I'm open. Yeah. yeah. And I have a great respect yeah. for it. One of my very best friends is this brilliant writer. She's written for British Vogue and she's just my polar opposite when it comes to that stuff. And she like started to write a book on astrology, pulled out not because she didn't want to write it, but the, the you know, the, the final product they wanted wasn't right for her, but she, she like loves perfume and scents and what scents do to you. And she's just like total hippy dippy, like always talking about mercury, mercury being in retrograde. Mercury. Right now. Like, we won't work. And, she's like, you know? and I'm like, that has nothing to do with the fact that I can't find my remote. And she's right. like, yeah. Like the fact that you just couldn't remember the password that you enter every single day has something to do with like Pluto or something like that, which listen, I mean, that's, that's Corinne. I mean, for me, and I mean, I've always been into astrology, but I did not understand like, like what you're saying, like the planets in retrograde or what any of that means. But it's you should talk more to your friend. But it's very fascinating. No, seriously, I hope this is true about me in general. I listen fascinated yeah. openly to everything and yeah it's just you know I think there's also just so much you can focus on in your life and have a lawyer and loving writing like I'm not right. there's only yeah a shock yeah, yeah. I'm a Gemini like if okay well that's what we were gonna ask you oh, so really? what, yeah so, yeah what's your sign and do you relate to it okay so you're a Gemini, I'm a oh, Gemini. We know a lot of one of my um, favorite signs is my husband is a Gemini. I hear, like, I'm supposed to be, so at first when I found out I was a Gemini, this is like in high school, someone told me that that meant I was two-faced and bipolar. And so I think I always like shied away from oh, that. Um, obviously. Yes. And I never, I decided that I didn't believe in it. But actually, like, the more that I read about it, I'm pretty Gemini. So I actually don't know what this means either. But I'm the 15th, which is the middle of the middle month. Yeah. That means something else, which I also, when I read it, agreed with. Corinne's going to tell us what that means. Well, one of our favorite Geminis who talks a lot about this in her work is Dead to Me creator Liz Feldman. And she's like, it's all about Dead to Me. So good. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. And she talked- She listened to our podcast. Sorry. She she wrote back to us on social media. We got so excited. <laughs> anyway, but go ahead. But <laughs> so she is, she talks about how she's both Judy and Jen and Gemini is really uh-huh. all about embracing your duality, embracing, mm-hmm. and you clearly have done it in this book, showing that two sides of Alex. 
that. Yeah. What it what there was another thing we read to another author, Corinne, about a Gemini where it the the lore was that they were interested in so many things they had to make two of themselves or something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That to replicate. That's a yourself. better way of saying it than two faced and bipolar. Yeah. No. I'm, yeah. Two faced. Yeah. That's so old. Like that. You said it, it yeah. was when you were in high school. That's such the. It's the twins. It's duality. Yeah. It's a complicated, layered. I'm gonna call my friend Kayla after this, and I'm gonna have to. Have oh a yeah. Conversation with her, and I know. Her initial reaction is going to be like, you met two girls today on a podcast and that's why you're calling me when for like 10 years I've been talking to them about You're like, yeah, but they're lawyers and they they know astrology. Totally. Like Corinne and Kate, forget it. Like whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, but that's going to be her initial reaction and then she's going to love it. <laughs> yeah, we love her already. We're we're two fire signs. Yeah. We have, you you were talking to a Leo and an Aries, and it's gonna it's gonna fill the whole picture out. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. She'll know we wouldn't let you go without embracing it to some extent. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I'm like a big believer. If I believe in anything, it's that you can't know everything, right? Mm. And so I don't I don't poo poo or dismiss the fact that there is more connectivity out there in the universe than I can ever know and am aware of. That is my stance on everything generally. I so, love, that. Um, love that. And that's really all you need to be open to it. Then you're not closing down any particular doors or points of access. But let's get back to the Voice Club. Let, well, I think one last question. This novel has been optioned by the highly impressive Michael Sugar as part of his first look deal with Netflix. You have to be over the moon about this, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone says this is like the icing on the cake. And to be perfectly honest, like icing has always been my favorite part of right. it. <laughs> I'm just obsessed with this. It's such a dream. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what do you... I know it's early in the process and Hollywood is complicated, but... Like what, what do you envision? We've also talked to a couple of authors who have been like, you know, I want to be on set or I want to just watch like with everyone else and I want them to transform it into something completely new. What do you feel about like what would your dream situation look like with having this beyond um, Netflix? So I, this is not your question, but I, I love this fact. I just want to say, and it's such a kudos to Michael Sugar. Everyone who has touched this book has just been this powerhouse woman my editor, my publicist, my agent, my agent's assistant, and Michael Sugar bid on it competitively. And there were other women who were bidding on it. And he is the only man that I went with in this process. And he totally got it. When oh, I love he got that. everything happening in this book. And it didn't matter to me anymore that, you know, I sort of like yeah. took such pride in surrounding this book with strong females. And I trust his vision entirely. So my answer to you now is the same answer I gave when you asked me about astrology, which is I'm firmly aware that I don't know everything. And I chose Michael because I trust him to do something caring and gentle and creative with this very gray and gritty book. And I trust him to not water it down and make it some hyperbolic, you know, Hollywood washed out version of what it is. And so I, I'm perfectly comfortable um, seeing it for the first time on film. But Michael, I actually know, would not have that. I think that he, you know, has encouraged the screenwriter to call me with questions, which she has done. Um, And I don't anticipate sort of being looped in at the end, but I signed the rights over 
to Michael Sugar and Sugar 23, which is a great team. He has an entirely great team because I'm comfortable with, with what they'll do with it. And so, right. yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a screenwriter and I'm not a producer and I'm not a director. So go with God, Michael Sugar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but being having the team that you trust to take it there and especially you're right it is a really gray and like you said gritty book and it could be made farcical and yes you're like no that's mm-hmm. that's not what's yeah. going to happen here. right oh. right and to be fair like that is not a judgment on anyone else bidding on the book but I yeah. just felt like he nailed it and he's such a powerhouse mm-hmm. and you know spotlight was so phenomenal and honest yeah. like I just yeah, I yeah. think that he's going to do something great with it. So I'm excited to see what that is. And I really hope it's something, right? Because like you said, this is in its nascency and I don't want to do right. it, but it would just be so wonderful to see. I actually think it would be a good movie. Like I didn't, yeah. didn't oh. write it with any of those intentions, but I think it's like high octane enough to to make a great film. And I think it would portray this really like, sexy New York that does yeah oh this is made for film I, know. I mean I and, mean and it's the the themes that we've been talking this whole time are so timely but it's also you did it in such like you said like a fun way oh I I think this is this is going to be amazing have you so. thought about like who like would play Alex or Carmen? Did you do you have it in your head at all? I know we're no, not think a cast. Listeners would really like this fact that I actually signed the Netflix deal before the Harper Collins deal, which has like never what? happened. Um, yeah, hey. I mean, just, just like who are you? Yeah. So the Netflix the Netflix offer came in after, but the deal was completed. It was all very simultaneous, and my agent called me with the fact that it was being looked at by studios, and I just. I didn't even, I, I actually think my response was, I didn't know that was a thing. Like, right. I was almost like, why didn't you tell me? And she didn't know either. My understanding is that studios pay sort of the big five publishing companies to read all the material that comes through the door, whether or not it's made into a book. And so someone read this and it got passed on to an agent and it got passed on to studios. And yeah, it, it was just like like a amazing amazing really speedy train to be riding for oh my gosh yeah my husband works in entertainment and they're just they they know how valuable the book the connection from the book to the screen world is and yeah that they definitely will go through the piles at a publishing house for sure if you're being considered there that is awesome yeah so I think about who would play these people all the time um and it's constantly you know every time I see some really great actor actress I'm like that's them you know so it's always evolving actually yeah yeah it's like just ever changing but the the final published copy of the book the marketing team at HarperCollins is, is so good at their jobs. And there's this book club discussion questions that always exist. But then there's also these two suggested cocktails. One is a, one is a mocktail, one is a cocktail for yeah. your book club party. And then there's who would you cast as this person? Yeah. All like, I think it's like eight of the main characters. Um, oh, fun. Yeah, which is also such a good so idea. Fun. You know, I hope your viewer, your listeners call in with like, you know, yes. love answers to that. And I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> Out of curiosity, who would yes. you have as Alex Vogel? I, Corinne has some Yeah, ideas. I did have some ideas. Well, I, I love Cami Mendez. Oh yeah. Riverdale. Yeah. And I, I know she's a little bit older, but she doesn't look it. 
but I just watched Palm Springs this weekend. It's a uh, new uh, movie on Hulu with a- Andy Samberg. It's it's interesting. Okay, it, everybody's talking about yes, it. So that's okay. right. So the lead there is Kristen Milioti, I think. Mm-hmm. She was also in Wolf of Wall Street. She was the first wife in Wolf oh, of yeah, Wall yeah, Street. Oh yeah, yeah, of course I know who that is. You yeah. look her up, you'll know. And yeah, she's been a con. Yeah. yeah, she is like got that adorable but badass. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to pull off, and I feel like that's perfect for Alex. That's vibe of like cute mm-hmm. but could kick your ass kind of thing. So, totally. And I think yeah. that's as she almost like doesn't know right away that she can kick someone's ass, but she totally can. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I, I liked both of those and I'm Love always that. trying to cast Catherine Newton. I know she's a blonde, but she played Reese Witherspoon's daughter on Big Little Lies. Oh yeah. 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 She's so good. Yeah. Ah, love her. Yeah. 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 She's so good. And first of all, there's hair dye, but second of all, I don't yes. feel like being brutal no. is a huge part of Alex's character. Agreed. It was more, yeah. you know, like, I don't think that there's any sort of reason she needs to have brown hair. It was more like, you should know what she looks like when you're reading this book, but yeah. Right. Yeah, but it's really right. the range of the actress, like who can yeah. pull off both of those sides. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not a... Yeah. 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 And I think that I think there's a ton of dialogue in the book, but I think there's also a lot of sideways glancing and mm. subtext. Mm-hmm. And only because Netflix bought it, like I've just it's it's gonna be a hard role. Like whoever plays it should have big eyes because I think there's yeah. things she's taking yes. in and I don't know how that's gonna play on film, but I'm sure Michael and the director and the actress will figure it out. Yeah. Oh so I'm, excited. I'm sure Wait, females look. I was just saying, females that are looking, female actresses, right, looking for a part. I think this is this is amazing for them, right? Because it does let you play like such a complicated character, where sometimes she's funny and sarcastic, and other times, of course, as we've talked about, she's making bad choices, like but super successful and ambitious. She's really good at her job. Yeah. Um, but to so pull off that really ending, smart. No, yeah, no spoilers. Yes. But to pull off that. Whew. Right, and not be laughed out of the room. Yeah, or yeah. or oh. have yeah, it has to be believable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a meaty part. I think yeah. people will love to play her. Yeah. Well, this is so exciting. I know this, Guys, really... this has been so fun. Oh, so fun. I mean, yes. we were looking forward to this, but it's exceeded my every expectation. I mean, love. I you know, again, I'm so new to this. I didn't know what to expect, but I just had such a blast. Yeah. And also oh, we good. knew how much we related to it. You didn't know coming in how. No. Yeah. No, I sort of wish. That. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I, wonder, I almost like, I wonder if I reacted verbally when you guys were telling me where you worked and stuff. I hope I did. Did I like just. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm? Okay. No, no. <laughs> you did. No. You did. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Thank All you right. so much for having me. It's been so fun. Oh, thank you for joining us. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen.com or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.